Sometimes it's funny for me to realize what memories pop out of my mind when I'm quiet, or maybe today you suddenly remembered something. Just I was sitting here in these last few minutes and seeing everybody walking very slowly. And I remembered all the jokes that people make about, well, they're not maybe so funny, about it looks like a mental hospital, everybody's walking around, nobody's looking at each other, you know, lights are on but nobody's home, and, and infinite jokes about this. But I think it's not a laughing matter, the fact that we're so um, overstimulated and burdened by our lives, not only by the culture, but by our inner lives and our stories, that uh, when we come away, I, I think it's usually a great pleasure to have this downtime. I really hope you are using it as much as you can to really have no more stimuli coming in. Uh, sometimes we say, uh, I don't know if it says it on the, on the, uh, on the form anymore, have you ever had uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? I think we all have it. I read, so that what I remembered while I was sitting is some years ago in the midst of a uh, quite an overwhelming time in my life. My husband and I were traveling in Chile, and uh, we were in a remote part of Chile, and uh, it, it's a lake region, and uh, we had found a cabin to stay at, uh, at, at this lake region, remote from a big city. And um, he was out in a canoe in the middle of a, the lake, and I was sitting on our uh, outside of our house on a bench, and I decided, I would go inside and take a bath. So I went inside and I was turning on the bathtub and then I, I had the thought, I'd better take the telephone off the hook so no one calls while I'm in the bathtub. It was a totally ridiculous thought. I was 10,000 miles away. <laughs> Nobody knew where I was. I was in the middle of Chile, remote, I, and you know, in the middle of nowhere. I didn't even know where I was, but I am so used to the phone will ring and I'll have to do something and it'll be the next thing. We're tremendously overstimulated and tremendously challenged. And it's not just to recuperate from the challenge. It's not just a rescuer, because we could have gone to Chile instead of here, or we could have gone to Hawaii, or we could have gone someplace else and sat on a beach. I wonder whose mind it went through today, that that might have been a better idea than coming <laughs> here. But actually, I think that we come here with a different intention. It's not just to rest. It's not just to let the mind settle down. It's not just not to have stimuli, but to be in the kind of circumstance where we bring the intention to uh, really see clearly what's happening in our mind, what's true for us, with the intention of developing a mind that lives more peacefully in a more engaged, hopeful, courageous way in these difficult times. This is a, a, a mantra that I like to say to myself, and I'd like to do it as a meditation with you. I'd like to suggest that you don't have to change your position or sit in any kind of more meditative way. This is fine. I'll tell you the two sentences that I say to myself. And then I'd like to take a minute and have you say those two minutes, to, those two sentences to yourself. You can do it with your eyes open or your eyes closed. I say them often. These are the two sentences. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. I sometimes do it on a breath, and then on the next breath. You can do it on a breath, off the breath. See if you want to say those to yourself for a minute. Eyes open, eyes closed. <coughs>
Then when you're ready, I wonder if you feel any different from having said those. Do you notice that there's a difference between those two sentences? Do you feel different when you say them? I wish we had time to see how you each have had felt about them. I think that they somehow cover the whole of my intention and practice. When you think about mindfulness practice, it's the intention to meet each moment fully, not hiding from it, and to meet it as a friend with cordial, engaged interest. Maybe it goes along with fully. Maybe unless there's a kind of cordial interest, you can't meet it fully. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? I didn't mention, but I'm sure you realized that you could go to Chile or you could go to Hawaii or you could come here and there could be no external stimuli that are startling you. But wherever we go, we take our minds with us. And moment to moment, the mind has memories and thoughts and opinions and all kinds of stuff that it wants to present to you. I sometimes think to myself, used to think before I went on retreat, I wonder what it's going to be like. It's kind of like Space Mountain at uh, Disneyland. Where Do you know Space Mountain? It's a, it's a roller coaster. And the thing that's particular about it makes it different from all other roller coasters is that it's indoors and it's in the dark. So you don't know where the next turn is. and You don't actually know how to brace yourself. So as you're going along, all of a sudden it turns here or there. And it happens here that you sit down with the best intention to have the mind finally relax. And all of a sudden, from here or there, comes some story, some memory, some unresolved challenge in your life. I, th- I have the feeling, depending on, depending on how hopeful a mood I'm in, I either think of it as how wonderful that my heart just waits its turn to tell me what it needs for me to look at. And sometimes, depending on my mind, I think my mind is lying in wait for me. Just the minute I relax, it says, okay, here, see what you can do with this one. But I think that those two sentences, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, are for me both the... uh, instructions for practice. Don't duck, be here fully. What's happening? Just can I stay balanced in it and really not struggle with this that's come to visit me, this thought, this memory, this feeling, this emotion, this reaction to whatever, big or small. I like this, I don't like this. Can I just do that? Can I meet it as a friend cordially? It's the instruction for mindfulness. And I also think it's the goal of practice, that we're not doing this. I was thinking about, as we practiced this morning, when we give beginning instructions, we really do emphasize being with the feeling of the breath and the feeling of the feet as we move, and those are proper instructions. We should do that. And we are really doing that in order to compose and consolidate and make the attention more keen and Uh, more settled. And I think to myself, it's really important to say, we're not doing this to become good breathers or good walkers or to be able to do a hundred breaths in a row without the mind wavering, the attention wavering, or a hundred steps without the attention wavering, which would be a lot, by the way, really a lot. But really, we are doing all of these practices in order to bring our attention into this moment so we can see clearly what's the truth of our experience. Really, not only what's happening, but what's true about what's happening. We now mostly are calling these retreats mindfulness retreats. And we've really switched over to calling them mindfulness retreats. And instead of the Pali word vipassana, which we used for a long time. But uh, I like to think about vipassana from time to time because the 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 um, translation of vipassana is usually seeing clearly. And I think that we don't see so clearly most of the time. We're overstimulated, overburdened, 
over-frightened and confused. I have a friend who uh, lives in New York. She's a single woman my age. She uh, is slowing down her practice as a psychotherapist. And, um, and she uh, was depending on uh, eventually being able to retire and live for the rest of her life. Her health is good on uh, her retirement fund, which, because she was self-employed, she was free to invest where she wanted, and she had invested it with Bernie Madoff. And it's gone. It's gone. And I heard about that. And I called her soon after. I, I knew about it. Uh, I knew that that's what she had done with her savings. And then I heard the news, and I waited a day or so. And then I phoned her. And I said, how are you doing? And she said, you know, she said, this is really, it's really, I'm really frightened. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't start going back to work for another 75 years. Uh, I really don't have another source of support. Uh, it's very hard to live in New York City on Social Security. It's very hard to live anywhere on Social Security. I said, how did you feel? I said, how did you find out about it? She said, a friend, another friend of mine called me and told me she'd heard the news. And I said, how did you feel about it? And she said, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't get what she was saying. She said it to me, and I couldn't get it. She said it again, and I couldn't get it. It like, didn't go into the head. I couldn't get it. And she said, and finally, I did get it, and I was terrified, and I couldn't believe that I was, I couldn't believe that this would happen. And she said, you know, I get up in the middle of the night when I can finally fall asleep, and I get up in the middle of the night, and I find I'm terrified. I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I don't know how I'm going to manage. I'll have to move, sell my apartment. I don't know what I'm going to do. She is a long-term practitioner. In the, in, she started her practice about the same time that I did. She said, you know what, though? She said, the only thing I didn't do ever is get angry. She said... I have enough trouble, as it is, without confusing my mind with anger. And I've, I've thought about that so much since that time. She said, anyway, she said, who would I be angry at? I don't want to be angry at Bernie Madoff. It's not like a real person, you know? He didn't do it purposely, and it's not, it's not comprehensible. It's not like a, a, a human being did that purposely to me. I can't, so I can't be mad at him. Should I be mad at the Securities Exchange Commission for not having enough oversight? You know, I don't know who those people are. The bankers? I don't what, Which ones? I, should I be, maybe I should be mad at myself, she said. All of my friends told me for a long time, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You have to diversify. This is an unwise thing. She said, but the truth is, every month I got statements, and they were, my account looked really good. And I was really happy about that. I really wanted to have more money. So maybe it's my fault. Maybe I should be mad at myself. She said, the thing is, I just knew from the beginning that being mad was extra. I didn't need it. I need all the clarity I can put together to figure out what I'm going to do in my life. And I couldn't spare any into anger. And I was just so impressed with that. She said, oh, this was the line that I wanted to tell you, she said, I couldn't have done this without my practice. So I thought about that, and that's the, my, that's the line that stuck in my mind. Because a lot of times when we say, we use the term my practice, we say, how long are you practicing? We say, I'm practicing 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Or I haven't been practicing in a long time. Actually, the truth is, I think we are practicing all the time. Every day that we get up and we manage from moment to moment, we're practicing managing, making a decision. I think to myself, the whole of life is like, uh-oh, what will I do now? Uh-oh, what should I do? Did you have an uh-oh moment today? Uh-oh, I don't like the lunch. Uh-oh, this is too spicy. Uh-oh, I don't know what I'm going to take a shower. Someone's taking a shower now, and I don't know what I'm going to take a shower. Uh-oh, I don't really know how to do this, uh, this, this yogi job that I have, and I don't know who's going to teach. There's a million uh-ohs in a day. Do you know the man who wrote the book, um, Everything I Needed to Learn, I Learned in the Kindergarten, whose name at this moment I'm not remembering, 
that same man wrote a second book, seriously, called Uh-Oh. It's out of print, but you can get it in paperback. Mm -hmm. And it really it makes the point that the whole of life is... Um, I used to have a big poster on my wall um, decades ago uh, that said, in a sort of a blithe way, I, I think I actually didn't appreciate completely how true it was, said, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. So really, uh-oh, what will I do now? And so when, when, when uh, my friend, let's call her Jane, that's not her name, but let's call her Jane, when she said to me, you know, it, it, I couldn't have done this without my practice, I thought when we say I, I've been practicing, I think what we're practicing doing is figuring out, uh-oh, what will I do now? And how will I keep my mind from leaping? How will I keep myself from being beside myself? Sometimes we use that expression, I'm beside myself with, with uh, overwhelm, I'm beside myself with what I have to do. The, 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 and my, my sense is, how will we keep ourselves in ourselves, looking as clear-visioned as we can through all of this sensory apparatus, with all of our memory and all of our uh, wisdom, and think, what should I do next? I want to go back a little bit to those, those lines about, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, and tell you why I, I think that in addition to being the instructions for practice and the goal of practice, they also are really the three parts of the Eightfold Path that have to do with the cultivation of mind, the transformation of mind. Many of you, most of you, I think, are familiar with the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths. This is what's true. Life is challenging for everyone because it's always changing. You can't really put things together and say, okay. In, uh, in I, 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 years and years ago, I used, to, uh, I used to think about the fact that if I turned on a, 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 a soap opera during the day, and uh, then I didn't turn it on for six months. Not much had happened in those six months. But if a character said something like, I will hate you for as long as I live, that by the time I listened again six months later or a year later, they would be back together. Or a person has a scene where they say, I love you so much, we'll never be apart. You know that by when you turn in again, something will have happened to them. Or finally, we, this is wonderful. I've never been so happy in all my life. And then there's a commercial break, and then someone phones on the phone. There's been an automobile accident, and someone's in the hospital. And I used to laugh at that. Look at this. You know, nobody, everybody lives like that, actually. I think that's why people enjoy those soap operas so much. They're like someone else having their life. But the life is very complicated. So the first noble truth, it's challenging. Second, it's challenging because it's more than challenging because we really have, we're built to have an imperative that is not able to accept how it is when we don't like it. Say, we want to change it. And we should want to change it, and we can change it. What the Buddha said, when you can change, you can change. When you can't, to be able to have the mind and heart to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got, is really the, the, the key to a mind that's not in extra turmoil. Extra turmoil is the imperative in the mind to have things different from how they are. If they can change, then we change them. If we, if we can't, then we can't change them. But in this moment, they are what they are. And the imperative that they be different, the mind that says it shouldn't be like this, but it is like this. It's like this for millions of reasons. And I think about the karma of my friend Jane there's millions of reasons. Bernie Madoff is one of the proximal karmas, and the lack of oversight that's been the hallmark of uh, banking in the last decade uh, or two, and uh, the fact that my friend was uh, uh, making those uh, investments that she thought were all right, that's part of the karma. The fact that she heard of Bernie Madoff and I didn't. Otherwise, it might have been my karma. Who knows? He had a very good reputation. Every piece of something that happens is a part of the karma of what unfolds. Really don't know what to be mad at first, but things happen as a result of events. 
such causes and conditions. Actually, when I was driving here yesterday, just to leave this, the, the, the discussion of the who to be mad at first, there was a, an NPR discussion about who to be mad at, which reminded me of my, my friend in New York. And the uh, moderator on this panel asked a very eminent economist, so should I be mad at the bankers? And there was a big pause. And I wondered, maybe, you know, check my radio, see it's still on. And the moderator said, you're really thinking about that, aren't you? And he said, yeah. He said, because, and he went on to say, an equivalent of causes and conditions. You don't know who to be mad at first. And the mad isn't going to help it. Regulation is going to help it. Changing it is going to help it. When the Buddha said that third noble truth about peace is possible, it was the peace that comes from letting go of that imperative that things be different from how they are when they're like that. Not because you've arm-wrestled your mind to the ground, but really out of the wisdom that it can't be different. It's really the wisdom of karma. Things happen. I left my house a few months ago. I don't think I told you. No, this, did I, I didn't tell this story last night. You tell me. must have told it yesterday morning to someone else. Told, I left my house and went with my husband to the local town. Didn't tell it, right? No. We came back an hour later. There was a huge oak branch across the road. That's a rural country road. And there was a truck there with a um, um, big chain trying to pull that branch out of the road so that cars could go by. And I drive back and forth on that road every day. Other people do. People walk. People run there. People walk their dogs there. Uh, those oaks have been standing there probably 150, 200 years. And that afternoon, in that less than an hour that I was gone, this venerable branch, huge branch, fell down and blocked the road. And no one was under it when it fell down. But someone might have been under it. Could have been me, I thought to myself. In some time in this last hour, after 150 years or so, this oak branch fell down in the very hour that my passage was under it. But it wasn't in the very seconds that my passage was under it. And it could have been. I think to myself when things happen, my friend Martha, who died in the last couple of years, um, died of ovarian cancer. And uh, one day she said to me, you know, Sylvia, I don't think I'm being a very good Buddhist about this cancer. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm not opening to the experience. I said, Martha, give me a break. You have ovarian cancer. You're not supposed to open. She said, well, I think I'm not, I said, well, I think you're just not supposed to be mad at it. She said, well, truth to tell, I'm mad at it. So I said, well, I think you're just not supposed to be mad at yourself for being mad at it. <laughs> so she thought a minute and she said, well, truth to tell, I am mad at myself for being mad at it. She said, because here's the truth. She said, you know, I'll think of, I'll, I'll get into a place where I'll think, you know, why me? Why me? Why me? This doesn't, you know, I'm young, I've been in good health, I lived right. Why me? And she said, I'll go on like that and I'll really suffer. And she said, and suddenly I'll think to myself, why not me? People get this. It's an awful disease, practically always fatal, sometimes and very rarely not, but practically always, and practically always fatal soon. So why not me? People get this. It's one of the things in the world. Who knows the karma and the causes of that? And what the Buddha said, and what Martha said, what my friend in New York said, they all say the same thing. I'm not happy about this. But I'm not suffering. It's just what happened. Now I have to figure out what to do next. I really think that's the key to the kind of mind that I'd like to have. This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. So it's a mantra of a, of a young friend of mine who's been uh, diagnosed with a uh, 
an autoimmune disease that's not fatal, but it is progressively deteriorative. And uh, she's in her mid-40s and in a wonderful time of her life with everything going for her. And she said, I say that to myself, she said, I need my practice more than ever now. And every once in a while I have to say to myself, when I think about what's happening with me, I say to myself, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got, and then I'm all right. That's an amazing thing, you know. I, I I hope I can convey that that difference between acknowledging I don't like this at all, but it's what I've got. There's a moment I think that's so close to that. Uh, I was going to read it at the end, but it occurs to me right now. I read uh, the the Inquiring Mind that uh, has just come out. You'll get it before you go home. It'll be on the table in a week. But there's an article by Spring. And it ends by saying, um, really without reading you the whole article, talking about her recent retreat experience. Is it all right if I read this? Recently I had a huge insight while on retreat. It was an incredible sense of interconnectedness and compassion. Everyone is suffering. So how can I be angry at anyone? I saw that clearly, like, oh my God, we're all in this together. Not everybody has pancreatic cancer. Not everybody was invested with Bernie Madoff. But everybody's got something. And if not now, soon. Or eventually. Or they know someone with something. I think what we're doing here, particularly in this contemplative part of our work, we talk about it, we live in a, we live in a, uh, in a consoling community. That's part of the practice, I think, uh, when uh, Anna was saying the other night about we don't lock doors here. You can leave all your stuff around. It's very good for the nerves to live in a safe community. It's just very good for the mind to live in a safe community. So part of our practice here is just living here. And part is hearing the Dharma, thinking about it, mulling it over, thinking about that the Buddha said, uh, among the famous things that we keep repeating that he said, is don't believe it just because you hear it. And if you, even if you hear it from someone you respect, try it for yourself, this practice. See if it's true. See if it rings true for you. Does that seem right for you, that when you struggle, you're in pain, and when you say, this is what I got? One of my teachers, Ajahn Sumedha, who's the abbot of uh, Amaravati Monastery in... Uh, England, was teaching one day right here, and I was sitting out there, and he was saying, sometimes my mind gets very upset when things aren't going right in my life, and I feel the tension of anger arise in my mind because of this or that or something else happening. But when I feel that that tension is arising, and I feel the discomfort, I say to myself, thinking of that situation, I say to myself, it's like this, just the way it is. It's like this, and then I'm all right. And the funny thing is when he said that, he said it in a certain tone of voice, and he just moved his hands in a certain way, and I just so got it that you could say to yourself, hmm, it's like this, and somehow that would mean I got it, that it couldn't be any different. Anyway, it was a huge wisdom teaching for me. Like It's hard to impart to other people how an insight felt in you, but I just so got that. I went around for the next year, a couple of years, wherever I was teaching, I'd get around to, somehow it would come up in my mind, and I would say about Ajahn Sumedho, saying, when my mind balks at having to accept something that it really doesn't want to accept, but that it has no power over. Because by the way, when there are things we have power over, or some power in, it's not about acceptance, it's about clear-minded response, not about acquiescence, clear-minded response. But he said, when there's a situation that I can't do anything about, my mind is tense, I say to myself, it's like this, 
and then I'm all right. So I told that all over the place. I, I said, you know, that little gesture, just letting go of it. Some years went by. Everybody seemed to find that a very helpful teaching. Ajahn Sumedho was back here, and I was visiting with him, and I said, you know that thing you said about, and I told him that same thing again, and you said, it's like this. I say to myself, it's like this. And, I did, and you did that little gesture. I said, that was so meaningful to me. Just really so changed my mind. He said, I said that. <laughs> he said, I did that? So who knows what he actually said or did. But it's actually what I think he said and did. And it had a profound effect on me. So who knows what I say or do or any of us and what it'll do for you. I want to tell you why I think every moment here we are not only living in the safe community and thinking about Dharma, we are actually changing the habits of our mind through those three middle parts of the path. And they are mindfulness, concentration, and effort. When you go past the prayer wheel down at the bottom of the hill, you turn the prayer wheel, you see it's got eight facets on that. That is the fourth noble truth. It's the eightfold path. It's the eight different ways that the Buddha talked about changing the habits of the mind. The three uh, uh, parts of effort, mindfulness, and concentration are the internal ones that you do all by yourself, the ones about living in a safe community you do with community, wisdom practices you do in your life. This you do inside in your mind. And they are all integral to each other. We teach about them sometimes. Okay, this is wise effort. This is wise mindfulness. This is wise concentration. But there really isn't a moment of any of them that doesn't have the others really embedded in it. In fact, it's actually concentration upon which mindfulness is founded. So these first few days, if it came into your mind as it used to in mind when I first started, when I, I, I couldn't quite get it together that my teachers would say, mindfulness is being present for all of your experience, how your physical experience, the breath, your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, whatever is happening, the whole, everything. Mindfulness is being attentive to it moment to moment in a balanced way. Now, bring your whole attention to the breath and stay with 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 the breath. And I thought, wait a minute, you just said it's attentive to everything and now stay with the breath. The stay with the breath is not to be able to stay with breath. The stay with the breath is to be able to calm the mind down, console it, consolidate its concentration, so that the critical word in mindfulness as the balanced recognition moment to moment of what's happening. The balanced is the word that matters. That balance depends on a foundation of composure. doesn't mean that nothing registers and that the minds are okay, 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 okay. It means that feelings arise but they don't blow you out of the out of the out of the moment. That you can say, Whoa, am I shaken up by that? You know, sometimes I think to myself of uh, the the times in daily life when that you're riding along on the highway and you realize the mind the, the mind starts to say this highway is too crowded. Why is everybody on this highway? Look at all those people. Everybody, there wouldn't be a traffic jam like this if people carpooled. And besides, it's using all this fuel, and I'm late for my dentist appointment or my mammogram or whatever it is, and I'm going to miss it, and who knows when I'll get another appointment. My mind could start to spin. In the meantime, I myself am alone in my car while I'm making all these editorial comments about everybody else driving by themselves. And the mind going off on a whole thing by itself, and then it catches itself, says, what are you doing? I say, okay, I'm making a mistake, excuse me. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? There are a million times a day that the mind starts to run away with itself. It's incredibly easy to become annoyed. <laughs> You're at a meeting, and somebody says something, and you absolutely disagree with them. And your mind thinks, whoa, I have to speak up right now. Say, wait a minute, may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? I could speak up in a moment when my mind has cleaned, cleared itself a little bit and settled down. 
And that, that, that so translated into the moment-to-moment experience of uh, being with the mind as it presents its experience to you here on retreat is what the composure is about. So we start with a very simple instruction and very simple, pay attention to this, the ways in which bringing your attention just to the breath as much as you can, just to the body as much as you can, just to the movements in doing your job, just to the taste and the movements in eating, works two ways to consolidate attention. One, it's the same thing over and over again, and so concentration deepens. And two, as long as you're doing this, you are not entertaining all the stories that we normally entertain. It's so, um, it's so interesting to me. Do you ever have the experience, I'm sure you've had the experience, probably here, all over the place, where some big story is unfolding in your mind, some big narrative of I'll tell him, or I'll fix her, or I'll do this, or uh, who will I invite for Thanksgiving? Now, what do I cook? They don't like this. That one doesn't like that. Uh, The whole big story, and then someone slams the door, or something drops, or there's a big noise, and you startle. Whoa, okay, here I am with the breath, all right. What was it I was thinking about? What was that? And it's gone, because it was a big bubble of nothing, actually. It was just a big bubble of a movie that was playing in your mind. But we can get captivated by the movies that play in the mind. And they're not even bad movies. What I'm going to cook for Thanksgiving might be an interesting thing to think about. It's not a bad movie. But if I, to the degree that I keep replaying it, because when, by the time it gets to Thanksgiving, I may have changed my mind at the last minute. I miss the opportunity of leaving my mind alone and seeing what it wants to present to me for me to see. Or for even if it doesn't present something in terms of my past or memories or unsolved problems, if I just go through the day and I'm there, it will be impossible for me not to see that things change. Really, we're not here to see what exactly we thought each thought each day, moment to moment, but really what's true. We came here yesterday, the sun set, it came up this morning, it's getting ready to set again today. The moon will wax and wane while we're here. There's any moment of, uh, of every day in which if the mind is not occupied in watching an old movie or a preview of a yet-to-come movie, where it might be just here and it just might grok in some very deep way that things change that time is moving on and on and on, which in, for, for in, some, in some instances is a, just such a liberating uh, understanding because to the degree that I know that things keep on changing when I'm in a very disagreeable time in my body or in my life, I think I handle it better because I know it won't be here forever. I think the other side of it, when I know that things are changing, 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 I am less likely to miss a part of my life. I'm not waiting for the next good time because today is the only time I'm going to have today. So at the same time that the insight of impermanence is, you know, I'll miss, you know, how did I get to be this old? All of a sudden, yesterday I was young. Look what happened. But on the other hand, the other side of it is, and I have today, and that's a miracle. So let me be here now and celebrate it and be here present for it. Those insights of impermanence, the insights of, I'll suffer. My friend, uh, what did I call her, Jane in New York, the insight of, this is terrible, but I could make it worse if I insisted that it was other. It's not other, it's like this. I'll have to figure it out. The insight, we make things worse when we have an imperative that it be, when we cling to the imperative that it be different. The insight that there's no one to blame, really. Everything is to blame. When I heard that movie on uh, on NPR, uh, that that uh, that panel on NPR yesterday, and the uh, moderator said, uh, "So can I be mad at the bankers?" And there was this long pause, and uh, so I'm filling in for the um, 
thinking the economist is now going to talk. And I say, no, no, tell them no. Don't be mad at the bankers. Tell them it's all the cause of greed and fundamentally the cause of ignorance. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to tell you I didn't say it out loud, imagining that it went through the, the airwaves. But I was thinking that's what he should tell them, that really there's no one to blame. It is human greed and ignorance that having more will make us happier. It's really those, those insights of impermanence and uh, the cause and end of suffering and about the multiple, multiple causes that keep this world creating itself moment to moment that I think we keep learning over and over again. And um, if I could make a, an equation, I would say that, in, that, that prayer, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, as a practice instruction allows for the arising of insight which accumulates as wisdom which then potentiates the ability to meet the moment fully and as a friend these things happen which then augments the ability to see more deeply how much suffering there is in the world both in inside of me and in my mind because of the places where I am still hidden to myself, where my habits haven't changed yet, and suffering in everybody else's mind. And in the end, I think the, the process which I trust, I don't think it finishes. I think it continues in the whole of the life. But the, protests, the, the process that I trust is that we become kinder and more tolerant the line that I didn't read in Spring's final paragraph was, uh, it's been, since then it's been difficult to hold grudges and resentments. I think it becomes hard to hold grudges and resentments. Everybody's doing the best they can, all kind of walking along blindfolded, feeling around for how we should do this. It's a very complicated life. I heard a story that I remembered recently, and one of my friends told me this story so long ago. I don't remember exactly the lineage. My friend was a Zen student. Her teacher had studied in Japan. Her Japanese Zen teacher had, I'm going to tell you the, the sentence that her Japanese Zen teacher is said to have said with her last breath. In the Zen tradition, there are particular lineages in which the uh, notion of a death poem, uh, in which you save up your last, you wait until you, what you figure is going to be your last breath, uh, and then you say your pith instruction, you know, the, the one that you really, really want people to remember you by. This particular woman is said to have expired saying, Thank you very much. I have no complaints. <laughs> I actually think that is a great. I would like to. I would actually like to be able to say that with as my expiring sentence. Um, I actually would like to be able to say it on any day, not expiring. Thank you very much. I have no complaints. It makes when you think about it. It makes so much sense. I don't think that this woman meant I never had a thing in my life that wasn't disappointing to me or I never had troubles. Everybody has disappointments and troubles and challenges. I think that it means that she fully understood that we're not in charge, that things unfold due to very complex karmic forces, and that to fight with what you cannot change fight with what happened. You can do things to change the future. To fight with what happened. Why me? Why not me? Is to create suffering in the mind. I think it's a way of restating 
the cause of suffering. Not even the cause of suffering. Suffering is imperative in the mind that things be different now. It doesn't mean capitulation. It doesn't mean don't try to change the future. It means we can do it without saying this is a wrong moment. My, uh, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, used to say, it's a lawful cosmos, talking about karma. And uh, you need to know that Joseph speaks with a very, uh, you can really see that he was born on the East Coast. And uh, when I first heard him say that, actually probably the first several times I heard him say that, I thought he was saying it's an awful cosmos. And uh, I sort of agreed with him, actually, from my point of view at that time. But what he was saying is that there are huge forces of karma. The oak tree fell down when it did. Bernie Madoff did what he did. People get, people's genes all of a sudden make muscular dystrophy or all of a sudden make muscular, multiple sclerosis or all of a sudden make pancreas cancer or all of a sudden breast cancer or brain cancer or any one of the huge spectrum of ills that flesh and spirit are heir to. To be able to say, you know, this is what I got. And can I respond to it with warm, engaged interest, with a hope to do something different? Can I be glad for my life? Um, we're going to try a new um, form of teaching today that... Um, I hope it's going to be something you'll enjoy this week. Uh, in the evening teaching, you'll notice that we have a Dharma talk in the afternoon, so this was supposed to be a Dharma talk. It was a Dharma talk. Uh, when we come back at 7.30 tonight, we'll come back earlier, but at 7.30 every night, there'll be like a continuing teaching, uh, I hope, presumably picking up the theme of this, that's more uh, of a practice, experiential uh, session. So tonight when we're back, I really want to talk about, I want to give instructions for metta practice, which is really blessing practice. To, to bless oneself or anyone else is to really come from a place of, um, a place of gratitude, a place of connection. I think it's actually the ability to bless that keeps us alive in this life, that pulls me out of myself. Even if I can bless myself, sweetheart, you're in pain, sweetheart. That's okay. You're doing the best you can. Relax. May you be peaceful. May you be happy. May you be free of suffering. If I bless myself, it's an act of kindness. It's an act of mindful response to the truth of the moment. I really, really understand my, my loving-kindness practice as um, contiguous with uh, mindfulness practice. It's really the mindful awareness that blessings can be offered or received. Maybe I'll leave, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll finish now. Um, I'm reading a book by, uh, I just got it recently in the mail. It's written by a rabbi who's done a lot of mindfulness practice. His name is Henry Glazer. And um, he's done a, the title of his book is a pun on Descartes, I Think, Therefore I Am. His book is I Thank, Therefore I Am. <laughs> and I've been thinking about that a lot, about the ability to express myself with... Um, affection for myself or anyone to thank, therefore I am. To appreciate. Well, I thought that was going to be the last thing I said, but I have two minutes more that I've allotted myself. And I want to put an end on that point because it's such a sweet story. My friend Tamara, who was a mindfulness teacher, one of the founders of New York Insight, died last year, about a year ago. 
be two now. Um, also of ovarian cancer. Also, it took her a while to die. It's a, that's a hard disease. And she was in Florida, and I talked to her. Um, I talked to her f- frequently on the telephone, as as her as she was sicker and sicker and sicker. And she uh, she uh, again. Uh, I was so grateful for her practice, and it was a great teaching for me about the potential of this practice. She uh, s- she sent the gifts of her best things to all of her friends to thank them for being in her life. So uh, I have a jacket that she sent to me that uh, she was very stylish and had really loved clothing. Sent me the jacket. I was very touched. She said, uh, um, you're a little bigger than I am, but um, maybe this will fit you and it'll look lovely. She meant, anyway, she... (laughs) With the same height, but I'll wear the jacket for you one night. But she thanked all of her friends. And I talked to her probably on the afternoon of the day that she died. And uh, she couldn't pick up the phone anymore. She was in a hospice. So I had to call the nursing station who went in and took the phone off the hook and held it up for her, propped it up next to her. And she said, this is so hard, Sylvia. And uh, I said, I know, but you know, not too much longer. She said, I know. It was really hard, and then she said, "Oh, she said, wait a minute, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, I have to stop for a second. The nurses are readjusting my blankets here. They, I have the most wonderful nurses. They have been so great. I have wonderful nurses. They took marvelous care of me. They were great. I really, we, you really have to do something afterwards to thank all of them for me." And that was the last conversation that I had with her. She died later that day or the next day, but she died thanking. And I think that she rescued herself at the last minute and stayed alive and connected. I really think that, uh, that loving-kindness practice is a profound way of engaging the heart until the last moment. So when we come back at, um, well, we'll come back before that, but when we sit together at 7.30 tonight, I'll give you some formal instructions for loving-kindness practice, and we'll practice with that. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.